Blog Talk Radio. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Will a strong and united America still be a force for freedom and prosperity around the world? America has created the longest peacetime economic expansion in our history. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Good common sense and sound judgment of the American people and their essential love of justice. Hi, welcome to Ted Vine for June 18th, 2023. I'm your host, David McLaughlin. Joining me, from, as always, Catherine Smith. Greetings from Ann Arbor, Michigan. I was hoping <laughs> Usually I'm in Atlanta, but I'm in Ann Arbor today. Yes, I was hoping you would reflect your geographic location. Uh, deep reporting from far up north. Because yes. And welcome, Jim Shiflett. Good evening, sir. All right. Uh, good to have you all both on this Father's Day weekend. Uh, we want to go – I want to start out with a special thanks to uh, Donald Trump. Um, we have had trouble trying to get through this U.S. Senate preview, and with him getting arrested uh, every week, seemingly every week, it put that behind. But he took a week off from getting arrested, so we're really appreciative for that. Um so now we're going to get into this spin uh, and finish this Senate preview this week. But in about 20 minutes, we're also excited that we're going to have on the show from public policy polling back for the umpteenth time, one of our favorite, most long-term, frequent guests, Tom Jensen. Uh, but until then, we got two more states to go. Uh, I will explain we are not going to cover Florida because right before we started this, we went and did the deep dive on Dwayne Wade, Grant Hill, someone else uh, against Rick Scott. So uh, we kind of took care of that. So now we got two remaining states. Catherine, are close to your region, not quite, but, but you know, up north. Uh, Pennsylvania. Um, we have an incumbent, Bob Casey, running for re-election. And the Republicans have some candidates out there. I know including, I believe, Doug, uh, Doug Mastriano said he's not going to run, but another candidate from that same uh, election cycle, uh, Connecticut Dave McCormick, has said he's going to run, and there are other candidates in the race. Um, my assumption would be that Bob Casey won last time. He doesn't seem to have any scandals, no popularity issues. Pennsylvania is a state. Um, Democrats can win, hence their seeming sweep in 2022 of elections. Um, Catherine, should we be that concerned about Bob Casey? I'm not concerned about Bob Casey. Um, you know, they've got a a really strong um, Democratic Party in Pennsylvania. They've been very successful in their campaigns recently. And uh, like you said, there's not a lot of there's not scandals. There's not, uh, you know, we aren't we aren't we don't hear about him all the time. I think he um, takes good care of his, his constituents, so I'm not worried about it. But I suspect that we all we always have to be guarded. Always we have to be prepared for whatever might happen. If they find a strong candidate, then we'll have to be uh, worried. But I think right now we're in pretty safe waters. Yes, Tim, uh, a variation of that same question. The Republicans last time picked a very controversial candidate for governor, um, Doug Mastriano. They picked a 
candidate that just did not connect with Pennsylvanians in Mehmet Oz, odds are they're going to pick a less controversial candidate that can connect better with Pennsylvania voters than Mehmet Oz when they run this time, be it Dave McCormick or someone else. Um, is that going to be enough to make this race competitive when others hadn't been recently? Well, uh, if if it turns out to be Dave McCormick, and it may or may not be because he's not formally entered the race yet, as a matter of fact, no major Republican has entered the race against Bob Casey in a state where the Republicans had hoped to play ball because they want control of the U.S. Senate. And so if they turn to McCormick, there's a guy who, A, lost the Senate primary to Dr. Oz, and B, and most importantly, who Donald Trump absolutely hates and will hammer. Uh, So, no, I'm not worried about Senator Casey at all. He breezes through, sits back, and watches the carnage unfold on the Republican side, and I'd say he's a good eight-point favorite. Yes. So that's not a very good pickup opportunity for Republicans. Let's go one state. Yes. One state south uh, to the state of West Virginia and talk about what most pundits would say is the best pickup opportunity for Republicans. That would be Senator Joe Manchin, who has won multiple terms as a Democrat while West Virginia has trended from Democratic to Republican as hard, if not harder, than any other state in the country. Um, year after year, it's become more and more Republican. The last vestige of their Democratic roots is Senator Joe Manchin. Tim, can, let's just say first Joe Manchin runs as a Democrat against most likely sitting Governor Jim Justice. Is there any chance he can hang on in that scenario? No. The latest polling from East Carolina University has Justice up 54 to 32. Even more telling, the same poll gave Justice a 57% approval rating, a 29% disapproval. Joe Manchin's approval rating with uh, West Virginia voters is 33%. And his disapproval is 59%. Republicans don't like him. And Democrats certainly don't like him. He's got nowhere to get votes. And I want to remind you of one more thing. That same poll showed Donald Trump in the Republican primary winning by 45 points in a state that that gave him his largest margin of victory um, in 2020. So I, I don't see any way. <laughs> I don't think Manchin shouldn't run. Tim, you almost answered my next question, but I'm going to give Catherine the chance of the first scenario. Joe Manchin stays a Democrat and runs for Senate as a Democrat. Can he win re-election? Oh, boy. That's a really good question. 
Uh, oh, I don't even want to. I don't even. I don't know. Probably not. Yeah. I'll make a simple answer, too, on that one. No, I don't think under that scenario he does. Let's talk about the other scenario that has been floated. Joe Manchin is pretty much an independent, maverick-type senator that um, caucuses with the Democrats. Um, He's been a Democrat. He's a Democratic governor, um, all those kind of things. Back when he first started his career, when Democrats ruled West Virginia, Um, Let's say he ends up being an independent, um, maybe even says he's just going to be an independent that caucuses with neither party for the most part. Tim, if he were to do that, I'll just put it this way. How much does that improve his chances that he could possibly defeat who I think is going to be the nominee, Jim Justice? None at all. Governor Justice is is a lot for between 54 and 57% of the vote. None at all. Okay. Catherine, I'm going to add a caveat before I ask you the same question. Jim Justice was elected as a Democrat, switched parties to become a Republican as the state started leaning more and more Republican. Um, And the fact that he was a party switcher didn't stick to him. Could Joe Manchin use the idea of I'm an independent voice, I'm not like Jim Justice, I won't just go wherever the – the political winds flow. I'm truly an independent that wants to look out for West Virginians and not stand for one party or the other. Could he take that tack and somehow no. be elected? <clears throat> no. He wouldn't be able to do that because there's nothing it's, – it's just not true. I mean everybody would be <laughs> laughing at him if he, said, if he just said that. <laughs> yeah, I, Sounds like in the you know when they have the person that's about to go to the gas chamber, the electric chair, dead man walking. It sounds like that y'all are saying Joe Manchin, dead man walking. Um, I yeah, guess my big fear is I just don't want Joe Manchin to run as an independent for president. Um, you know, I would love if he could somehow sneak out some kind of victory, even if he was an independent. An independent Joe Manchin is going to be preferable to a Republican. Uh, particularly one that's going to be beholden to Republican primary voters in West Virginia. Um, but the, the odds aren't very good. Uh, I want to make one more comment on Jim Justice before we move off of West Virginia and amazingly get into our Bicel Halls tonight. Um, you know, a lot of Republicans want to talk about President Biden's age, and they'll be like, oh, um, you know, Joe Biden's too old to run for re-election and too old to serve and this, that, and that. You can have that opinion. But when you go and you support a Jim Justice who is well into his 70s to be a freshman senator, knowing that the Senate is a body where you have to serve for multiple terms to move up the seniority ladder to have some real power, you're going to put him in as a first-term senator I think you don't get to make that argument about President Biden. Um, Tim, knowing that this is West Virginia, a state that had Robert Byrd, a state that had Jay Rockefeller to build seniority to where they got more and more power and they were able to bring in government dollars in a state that really doesn't have much of an economic profile, um, are you surprised that the Republicans in that state 
don't want a younger candidate to represent them. They want a winner to represent them. They want a sure winner to represent them, and they'll worry about youth later. Uh, it is true that justice is, is, is uh, you know, up there. But you know what? Manchin's past 70. Did you know that? He is past oh, 70, right. and he served yeah. two terms. So, therefore, right. he's like Charles Grassley. You can be 80 yeah. if you serve a bunch of terms. I'm talking about a freshman. Yeah, well, you know, what they want is a win, and uh, the governor will give them a win. He's very popular. He's, he's the, the voters think he's done a good job, and, uh, you know, he I, I think he's the closest thing to a, a sure thing uh, a, a, among any challenger in the country. I mean, it's just, you know. Unless he just, you know, just makes a horrific... I couldn't imagine him making a bad enough mistake to to even make that race close, much less lose it. It's it, it, there's I just see no way that this is going to be a competitive race, uh, you know, even though this age thing is, is something to talk about. So, Yeah, Catherine, two things. One, couldn't... Republicans, given the state of uh, West Virginia politics, beat a Democrat with almost anybody that wins their primary. And two, didn't Jim Justice run the first time for governor as a Democrat basically on the platform that he was going to be continuity and a politician in the style of outgoing Governor Joe Manchin? I don't remember that, but – you know, you can't use you can't argue with people when they about like age, for example. You said, well, you know, everybody's always saying that Joe Biden is too old, but you can't switch that. You can't say, well, if Biden's too old, then then surely justice is too old because people are like, oh, that's different. Senators are different than presidents. He's different than you know. It's just you know, Republicans are different than Democrats. You know, there's always an excuse. So. Um, yeah, I'm with I'm with Tim. I think we're uh, we're going to end up with justice <laughs> as as it turns out. But things can change. Yeah. We'll see. Yeah, I do think that's going to be the tricky one. You lose that West Virginia Senate seat. We're now back to fifty fifty with Kamala Harris being the tie breaking vote. This would be under the assumption that she wins reelection as vice president. Unless you pick up a Senate seat somewhere else. And once again, I mean, even if you trade out Kirsten Sinema for Ruben Gallego, which is an improvement for most Democrats, you're still 50-50. So then that's where either you can't lose anywhere else and retain the Senate, or you have to pick up a Senate seat like Texas. And so that's kind of the big take this as a loss. Then you've got to find somewhere else. Um, to, to pick up if either you're the Republicans to take up the you know to um, turn the body over or as Democrats to um, nope. you know make up and keep you know uh, treading water where we are now. Can and we know what to? that is. Well, that, we know where that is. There, there's two places. Uh, first and foremost, far and away, Ohio is their second target. And to a lesser degree, uh, Montana. Although I've got a feeling 
that that Montana's going to be a little tougher for them than they think it is. They've thought that before, and they, they haven't won that seat yet. Ohio, however, has, you know, we know how it's been trending. We know it's a presidential year. We know that, you know, they gave Donald Trump a pretty good vote. I mean, they just elected an outright idiot to the other U.S. Senate seat. Uh <laughs> And, uh, yeah, yeah, Sherrod Brown's a a great man. He he really is, and and he has run ahead of the party in in several races. But that's going to be brutal right there. And that's going to – that, I I think, their two main marks. They've already got West Virginia in their pocket, I think. Now they turn to Ohio. Yeah. Catherine, in many ways, it seems like Ohio, the rural part of Ohio, take away Cincinnati, take away Columbus, take away Cleveland. The rest of Ohio and West Virginia are very much the same place. Would that be a oh yeah, absolutely yeah? And so it's then it becomes can those three cities produce enough, and the, the cities and really the suburbs produce enough vote to be more democratic than this rural area that West Virginia and Ohio or rural Ohio are similarly like. So um, we'll see how much cities matter because, you know, West Virginia just doesn't have a real city to speak of. I mean, I'm sure Charleston and Wheeling and um, name me another one, Morgantown are all fine places, but they're not true metropolitan areas that, kind of buoy democratic votes well guys i think i'll throw a name out there we'll talk for a second and then we'll probably be into our guest at that point but let's throw a name out there on our buy sell hold because since we did this i can't even, i probably can't even tell how many republicans have jumped in this race um but we're going to start with a few um the one of the names that came out this week that has kind of made an interesting splash because they're a bit different is former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie. Um, he's gotten in the race, and it's, his, his profile is a bit different than some of the other candidates. And then there was a poll out of New Hampshire that was very different. Um, Tim, give me a buy-sell-hold on Chris Christie's chances. We're well, talking nominating him. Yeah, yeah, and 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 you know, I, I told you before we went on the air. I thought he entered this race for one main reason, and that is to derail uh, the electoral chances of Donald Trump. He wants to get him on the stage, and uh, you know, see if he can do to him what he did to a certain senator from Florida uh, back in 2016. But you know something, guys, I always thought that. Christie missed his chance in 2012. If he'd entered the race that year, he might have made a splash. He didn't do it. I'm going to sell him. Yeah, um, we'll get to some other points, but uh, and I think you're right that I mean this is a guy that's not been in the governor's mansion in over six years, if I'm not mistaken. Um, mm-hmm. In New Jersey, so he's not really been a much of a, a true player because even though he dotted in and out of the um, White House administration under Donald Trump. He actually never had an official role. Did he? He'd help with debate prep and catch COVID and things like that. Mm-hmm. He never had the actual title. That's it. Yeah. Yeah. 
Um, Catherine, buy, sell, hold on Chris Christie's chances. Yeah, you know, I think when I think of Chris Christie, I don't think of, like, uh, an anti-Trump person. That's not what first comes to mind. And while he may be uh, trying to fill that role, I just remember him as being sort of a lapdog to Trump at the beginning and then, you know, turning on him a little bit. But my my first impression of him is that he's, you know, a good old Republican who's going to, you know, like if he didn't get the nomination, he would stand up right away and support Trump. So I don't I don't have a lot of um, confidence in anything that he says, and I don't think he has a lick of a chance. Well, Catherine, you might could have cut that into an ad for the Republican primary. Um, you know, Tim would sink him saying he's anti-Trump, but you said he likes Trump, so maybe he gained some points for Republican primary voters. We'll pick this up in just a minute, but right now we are excited to welcome back to the Kudzu Vine for I don't know how many times he's been a guest seemingly over a decade from public policy polling. Welcome back, Mr. Tom Jensen. Hey, good to be with you all. Oh, great to have you back. Um, Tom, we're going to talk about a lot of different states, but right off the bat, I actually wanted to ask you about a national polling and, and what y'all you may have done and maybe polling you've seen because we know you're privy to um, polls. I have seen so many national polls that show that if Joe Biden's not winning this race, He's doing extremely well against Donald Trump, against um, Nikki Haley, against uh, Ron DeSantis, Tim Scott, whoever. But then if they decide, you know, give the scenario, he doesn't run, Vice President Kamala Harris is the nominee, that polling completely switches. I saw a poll out today that showed Kamala Harris losing by seven points to uh, Donald Trump, and I think he was she was losing two points to Ron DeSantis in the same poll with a lot more undecideds. My question is two-part. One, are you seeing similar numbers? And more importantly, when you kind of get to see inside the poll, what is causing that Biden-Harris gap? Yeah, um, we do see that she doesn't perform quite as well as he does in head-to-head matchups. And uh, just speaking very frankly, frankly, it is because she does a lot worse with white voters than he does. Um, it just seems like uh, there's some white voters who maybe aren't so comfortable with the idea of a black woman in the White House yet. And I hope that if we end up in a situation where she is the candidate for president at some point, that uh, voters will get over that. Uh, but I think there is some at least initial reluctance there. But I will say, sort of in the sense of this not necessarily being something that's going to be true forever, uh, you were talking about how long we'd been chatting. I think the first time we chatted was uh, in early 2008. Uh, and if we had been talking about uh, a similar sort of thing in early 2008, we would have been talking about how Barack Obama just did not do as well against the Republican candidates as Hillary Clinton or John Edwards did and sort of, you know, contemplating whether Obama could win the general election. And, of course, the better that voters got to know him over the course of 2008 and into the 
first term of his presidency, it turned out that he was quite a vote getter. But just like we see with Harris right now, there was some initial reluctance for uh, for people to say that they would vote for somebody who was so different from anybody who they had ever voted for for president before. So my my glass half full uh, interpretation about Vice President Harris's situation is that hopefully, just like what happened with and Senator Obama, uh, if she actually does someday, hopefully not in 2024, uh, become the Democratic candidate for president, uh, hopefully people will become more open to her maybe than they are initially. Yes, and, and I will say this. Another, my understanding is one of the major initiatives of the early part of the Biden-Harris campaign rollout is to improve her popularity with voters like they're probably putting as much emphasis on improving her image as any uh, re-election campaign has done so for a vice president. Um, so, you know, may, maybe that'll begin to have some impact, even though, you know, and hopefully this is theoretical, um, you know, for 2024, and then that can boost her for a possible run in 2028 or later. Um, well, sure. I wanted to hit you with that master question. So now I'm going to be nice to you. And the last topic, and it's going to be multi-question, though, is going to be coming right <laughs> back to your home state of North Carolina. And um, since we last talked, since you and I met in person last summer, um, I've actually gotten to visit another part of North Carolina. I had not been to Asheville probably in my memory. I think I got trucked up there when I was like four, but that doesn't count. <laughs> so I got to see a whole other part of the state. I've been to the coast. I've seen all these places, these cities, these college towns. And for the life of me, there seems to be all these democratic places spread across this state, big cities like Charlotte, the Research Triangle, um, a large African-American population along the coast. And now this city of Asheville, which is so cosmopolitan, and seemingly there's no place like it in Virginia and in Georgia. Why is North Carolina, why is it not trending Democratic any faster than it is? And I know I've asked you this question before, but it's so vexing. <laughs> well, the big difference between North Carolina and Georgia is that, and you all can speak to this better than I can, but – uh, when you get to the first counties out from Atlanta, those still tend to be pretty Democratic places. I mean, obviously, Fulton County itself is pretty Democratic, but you get to all the neighboring counties, they've become pretty Democratic, too. Uh, in North Carolina, what you have is, sure, Wake County and Raleigh are pretty Democratic, Mecklenburg County and Charlotte are pretty Democratic, but all of the counties that border Charlotte and Raleigh and Greensboro and Winston-Salem are still very Republican-leaning. Basically, once you get to those what I would sort of call second-ring suburbs outside of the counties where the big cities are themselves, you end up with uh, a lot of situations where Republicans are winning 60%, sometimes even two-thirds of the vote. Uh, and that contrast with, uh, with what's going on down in Georgia, I think, is the, the big difference in why Georgia's been voting Democratic in key races and North Carolina uh, still can't quite get there. Um, some of that definitely just has to do with straight-up demographics. The, uh, the broader Atlanta suburbs are more um, racially diverse than the, the ones 
sort of further out from uh, Raleigh and Charlotte. So that's a piece of it. But uh, that really is just the big thing is that, uh, you know, you go out from downtown Atlanta and you're still pretty Democratic for maybe an hour or so, especially in Atlanta traffic. Uh, whereas you get more than about 20 or 30 minutes outside of downtown Raleigh or Charlotte and you're in pretty Republican territory. That that really is the, the big difference right there. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you what, if I could turn my uh, current home city of Rome into the Georgia version of Asheville, I'd take it because I could tell that was <laughs> a progressive place that was not a major city that's just not analogous to most states in the country that may be more democratic because that's a, a mountain town, a town that has probably some diversity but not a ton, and yet it leans uh, much more democratic than than places um, that have the same, say, racial profile of it. Um, so I found it very unique. Well, let's stay in North Carolina, and I have seen that the Biden-Harris campaign is really targeting North Carolina. I mean, obviously they're looking at those three um, – you know, Midwestern states, which Catherine's in one right now, uh, they're still looking at, you know, Arizona and Georgia. But North Carolina, they want to push that onto the map and win that back for the first time since 2008. A, are you hearing that? And B, um, is that a good move? Yeah, I think that North Carolina really is one of the most competitive states in the country. And uh, I think progressives in particular think of it as being so frustrating because it seems like uh, we always lose in the end, and there's some truth to that. Uh, in 2012, it was the closest state in the country that Barack Obama lost. Uh, in 2014, lost the Senate race by a point or two. In 2020, lost both the presidential race in the state and the Senate race by a point or two. So North Carolina keeps on flirting with being good for Democrats in national races, but at the same time, it has been 15 years since uh, Democrats in North Carolina won either a presidential or a Senate race in the state. Uh, but that said, any time that you're consistently getting within a point or two, like has been the case uh, in recent elections, it really doesn't take that much to to put it over the top. Uh, and North Carolina is a state that constantly has a lot of new people moving to it. Those people who move to North Carolina tend to be more democratic than the sort of aging part of the population that uh, is a little more Republican. So it definitely makes sense to have North Carolina high on the list. Certainly if there's any state that uh, Joe Biden didn't win in 2020 that he could win in 2024, uh, I would say that North Carolina is very much at the uh, top of that list. They just need that little extra push to turn uh, these one-point losses into a one-point win. Yes. Now, let me talk to probably a race that's even more important to North Carolinians than the presidential race, and that's your governor's race. Um, Josh Stein, the sitting attorney general, probably is going to be the Democratic nominee. Mark Robinson, the sitting lieutenant governor, is most likely going to be the Republican nominee. First off, is there any – do either of those gentlemen have any real competition for their party's nomination? Josh Stein certainly doesn't have any real competition at this point for the Democrats. Sort of interesting for Mark Robinson on the Republican side. I mean, certainly on paper he has real competition. He has the state treasurer, Dale Falwell, running against him. He has a former congressman, Mark Walker, running against him. But 
even though those are people whose profiles on paper sound like they should be pretty formidable candidates, it really does seem like uh, Mark Robinson is the overwhelming favorite at this point. Something would have to change pretty significantly for him not to be the nominee. Yeah, and if I'm not mistaken, he has the Trump endorsement already. Yeah, it's an interesting situation uh, that just sort of manifests itself over the weekend. But uh, Mark Robinson has been endorsed by Donald Trump, but uh, Mark Robinson himself won't endorse Donald Trump. So you would think that uh, it would be a situation where usually the person running for governor would sort of be more eager for the partnership than the former president. But uh, at least so far, Trump is actually more into Robinson than Robinson is into Trump. <laughs> hmm. uh, no. I, I, I'm envisioning the book title. He's just not that into you. Um, <laughs> you call that dynamic. Um, well, now let's get into it. Let, let's say these two gentlemen, both are the party standard bearers. Um, you know, Josh Stein seemingly he reminds me a lot of Josh Shapiro in a lot of ways. Both attorney generals, both think Josh, uh, probably not flashy uh, politicians, but just good government. Uh, you know, office holders. Um, and then you've got Mark Robinson, who is one of the most controversial, I guess, down ballot elected officials really anywhere in the country, uh, and, and which is surprising in a well educated state like North Carolina. But one key thing I think to remember is that he is African American. I might even do some follow up questions about the different scenarios. But where does this race stand today? Um, just your sense, and if you got any polling information. Yeah, we've done a couple polls, and just speaking to North Carolina's general political orientation, we found it to be very close. One time when we polled it, Josh Stein was up by a little bit. Another time when we polled it, Mark Robinson was up by a little bit. Uh, it's very interesting that you made that Josh Shapiro comparison, though, because there's basically two ways that I can see this race ending up. Uh, one of them is that it just stays the way that it is right now, that it's super close uh, all the way to the end. And if I had to make a bet on how this race will unfold, that's probably what I'd bet on. But uh, we saw in both Michigan and Pennsylvania last year, which are also 50-50 states, much like North Carolina is, that when Republicans nominated really extreme candidates for governor, sort of uh, in the vein of Mark Robinson, uh, Democrats ended up winning those races by 11 points in Michigan and by 14 points in Pennsylvania. So uh, even in those 50-50 states, it ended up being Democratic blowouts for governor because the Republicans were too extreme. And what was interesting about both of those races is that even though he's lieutenant governor, I still don't think Mark Robinson is really all that well-known in North Carolina. Uh, one thing that was interesting about our current governor, Roy Cooper, is that when he was running for governor in 2016, he had less than 50% name recognition, even though he'd been attorney general for 16 years. Uh, basically, anything below the governor's Senate sort of level, uh, voters just don't have very strong opinions about you. So both those Michigan and Pennsylvania races last year started out a lot closer, like the first polls uh, right after the Republicans picked their nominees. It was maybe a three-point race, four-point race that sort of thing. And then the more voters learned about the Republican candidates and the more voters sort of became aware how extreme they were, that was when it then turned into races that Democrats won by 11, won by 14. 
I'm not really predicting that that's going to happen in North Carolina, but I think that's a lot more possible than Mark Robinson ending up winning by a blowout margin. So I think it's either going to be a race that's kind of a toss-up to the very end or one where Josh Stein maybe ends up winning by a healthier margin uh, once voters sort of become more aware of Mark Robinson than they are right now. Yes. Now, obviously, you know, the usual suspects like turnout and, you know, persuasion media and all that are going to be factors. But I see two factors at play that could happen um, that will decide this race. Don't you tell me which one's more likely to be the decider. Enough Republicans hear enough about Mark Robinson and him being so far outside the mainstream that they are uncomfortable with him and either just leave the race blank or become Democrats and vote um, for Josh Stein, or the fact that Mark Robinson is an African-American will be the first African-American governor in North Carolina's history. Enough Democratic African-American voters say representation matters, switch parties, and we're talking just a small single-digit percent, but still enough switch uh, and vote Republican to elect the first African-American governor, causing the race to, you know, switch over to the Republican columns more solidly. Which one of those dynamics is more likely to occur, or if both occurred, which one's more likely to be the decider? Uh, I definitely think that you could see some element of both of those things. Uh, but I think that the bigger one is probably well-educated Republicans being reluctant uh, to vote for Robinson if he's too extreme. And you were talking about earlier about how Josh Stein seems similar to Josh Shapiro, like kind of just a normal, competent sort of candidate. I think that makes Republicans who are uncomfortable with Robinson maybe more comfortable with voting for Stein or at least leaving it blank than they would otherwise be. If he was somebody who, you know, was just coming across as somebody who was constantly going to be getting attention as the most, like, uh, in-your-face liberal governor in the country, uh, I I think Republicans would have a harder time supporting that uh, than they would somebody like Josh Stein, who's pretty mild-mannered. I mean, he certainly is uh, progressive, but he's not necessarily, you know, out there setting fires and that sort of thing in a way that, Republican might voters might be really uncomfortable with to the point of uh, black voters being willing to vote for Mark Robinson. I mean, it's not a perfect comparison to um, Herschel Walker's race in Georgia last year, because obviously Reverend Warnock was also a black candidate for the Democrats, but uh, we did not see much uh, willingness among black voters to go vote for Herschel Walker uh, as a black Republican uh, the Republican part ended up mattering a whole lot more than the black part, and I think that you'll probably see the same thing happening with Mark Robinson here. But what Democrats do need to do in North Carolina is most of the results that happened in North Carolina last year that were disappointing were a product of low turnout um, among black voters, especially in more rural parts of the state, uh, and Democrats are going to need to work hard to <laughs> – make sure not just that those folks vote for Josh Stein and Joe Biden, but really need to put in the work to make sure that they vote, period, and don't just take that for granted. Go into those rural communities and give voters of color uh, in the less populated parts of the state uh, a real reason to come out and vote. 
Yes, and I'll make one little comment before I pass it to Catherine and Tim. Um, as a Georgia Democrat, I am very glad that it was Ref, uh, Reverend Warnock facing um, Herschel Walker than John Ossoff because that just took that dynamic away, and it wasn't even one that had to be answered uh, because, you know, we, the unknown is scary at times, particularly a race that went to overtime. Well, I'm going to pass it to Catherine, then to Tim, and I will go ahead and tell you, I'll close up the show, but I have no more questions because I have taken uh, a lot of your time when you're home state, and you gave wonderful answers. So, Catherine? Hey, Tom. Greetings from Ann Arbor. Hey, how are you? I'm in Ann Arbor. Well, that's, that's I know, I know you're a fan. Um, I wanted to talk to you about um, Seattle, or about Washington. You had said in your note to ten, to uh, David that um, you had some interesting results from Washington State. So we just wanted to check that out and see what you had to say about Washington State. Yeah, so we pulled the presidential race in Washington this week, and we found Joe Biden leading Donald Trump by 17 points. And in 2020... Joe Biden beat Donald Trump by about 19 points in Washington. So we really found a, a very similar situation to what happened last time around. And obviously Washington itself is not a competitive state. doesn't matter that much. But uh, I think it's worth noting that that's just generally what we've seen when it comes to Biden versus Trump polling uh, is that the situation for 2024 most places is – really very similar to what it was like in 2020. We did a national poll recently where Biden led Trump by four points, which was exactly what he won the uh, popular vote by last time around. Um, so when people sort of ask how have things changed since 2020, answer's not much. Uh, and I do think it's important for people to remember that that means that we're in for a very close race again, most likely, because even though – Biden won the popular vote by four points and ended up winning the Electoral College by a pretty sizable margin. It was very close in Georgia. It was very close in Arizona. It was very close in Nevada, very close in Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Michigan. So uh, you definitely have a, a, a situation where the most important states that are going to determine the winner could still be very tight, um, even if Biden is winning the popular vote by a decent margin again like he did the last time around. Yeah, which means we need to make sure we're – Democrats need to make sure they get to work and make sure we get everybody out to vote. <laughs> Any other yeah, um, that, curious – oh, go ahead. Oh, that that really is the, the, the biggest thing, I think, for, for 2024, for both sides, really, is that there's not a lot of people who are out there not sure whether they'd rather vote for Biden or for Trump. I think most people know what the answer to that question is for them. So a lot of it is just going to come down to who can do a better job of mobilizing their people. Uh, and one thing that's sort of interesting about the 2020 presidential election is because of COVID, Democrats were sort of reluctant to do the sort of field operation that they would usually do. Uh, so I actually wonder in some of those states that were super, super close in 2020, your, your mind immediately goes to, oh, no, you know, maybe Trump can win them by one this time when Biden won them by one last time. But it also could be something where if Democrats are able to sort of do things more the way that they are accustomed to doing things when it comes to their field program, 
maybe those one-point wins in Georgia and Arizona end up being more like two-point wins this time around. And uh, that would almost be a, a landslide in a state like Georgia for Democrats at this point to, <laughs> uh, to win the state by two or three points. So uh, it'll be interesting to see how that all plays out. Any other um, curiosities that you'd like to share with us that we might not think about? Uh, just one other thing that was interesting about that Washington poll was that uh, we tested a hypothetical Senate race between Maria Cantwell and former Congresswoman Jamie Herrera Butler, who is really one of the, the most moderate and anti-Trump Republicans in the House. Uh, and we found that Senator Cantwell had a 15-point lead. One thing that was sort of amusing about the uh, red wave narrative last year uh, was that Republicans were claiming that they were going to beat Patty Murray in Washington, uh, and then Patty Murray ended up winning by like 14 or 15 points. Uh, and we're already seeing Maria Cantwell up by similar margins for next year, even against the uh, toughest possible candidate Republicans could probably put forward against her. So I'm guessing we're going to hear a lot less claims uh, this time around <laughs> about how Republicans can win Washington uh, than we maybe did last fall. Well, that, that I mean, we're not, no one's surprised by that, right? That Democrats will <laughs> win Washington. <laughs> okay, I'm no. going to pass it to Tim. Go ahead, Tim. Good evening, world traveler. How are you doing? I'm good, Tim. How are you? Well, I'm doing very well. Um, so I, I want to jump right quick up to the state of Pennsylvania. Um now we we know that the Republicans um are targeting three US Senate seats in which a Democrat holds the seat and Donald Trump won the state in twenty twenty, that being West Virginia and Ohio and out in Montana. But the Republicans want to expand the playing field. One place they've been looking at, of course, is Pennsylvania. Now, you were involved in some of it earlier this year, and there was a lot of polling out there that showed if Doug Mastriano uh, ran in the Republican primary that he was better than 10 points ahead of anyone else running. Um, All of a sudden, I hear that Doug Mastriano has decided he's not going to run, and As of right now, there is no major Republican announced to even run against Senator Casey. What in the world is going on up there? (laughs) Well, I do think that uh, Fella McCormick, who was sort of who the establishment wanted last time around uh, and who lost in the primary uh, to Dr. Oz, uh, Mm -hmm. is probably going to end up running, although uh, I guess it sounds like most of his family is not so into the idea, uh, but I think he is, so ultimately that's probably what uh, matters the most. But what I think is sort of fascinating about that dynamic is this is who the Republican establishment wants to run. I mean, let me just repeat, he lost a primary to Dr. Oz. (laughs) I mean, is that really a strong candidate, somebody who lost a primary to Dr. Oz? And you look at someone like Bob Casey, he won by double digits his last re-election, even in a 
a state that's been very competitive for the most part in recent elections. So it's going to take somebody really strong uh, to to sort of take a real shot at Bob Casey. And uh, it seems like Republicans, even in their you know best of all worlds, are looking at this guy who lost a primary last year to Dr. Oz. Uh, so mm-hmm. that would make me feel pretty good about ultimately getting reelected if I was Senator Casey. It's going to be closer in a presidential year than it would be in a midterm year because it just sort of changes the dynamics about who votes and how open they are to ticket splitting and that sort of thing. But even if he doesn't win by double digits this time around, I'd be pretty surprised if he ends up losing. And if he does end up losing, that's going to be uh, – just one of many problems for Democrats on election night, because the only world in which Bob Casey loses is one in which Republicans have really kind of just won the entire election nationally. Yeah, I, I certainly agree with everything you just said. So let's step over to Wisconsin. We've been talking a lot on the show here all year about these special elections and the scheduled elections for the fall. And we have come back, to this special election for the Supreme Court in Wisconsin every time and said, that's the most important election of 2023. Are we right about that? Oh, yeah, definitely. And not just that Democrats won, but that they won by 11 points. is so impressive in a state like Wisconsin. And that wasn't the only election like that that night. There was a state Senate race in the Milwaukee suburbs in a district where Trump had won by eight and a decade ago, Romney had won it by 20. So it was somewhere that used to be super Republican, still pretty Republican with Trump winning it by eight in 2020 and Democrats Mm -hmm. only lost by two there. Uh, Mm -hmm. And certainly those Wisconsin races were particularly important, but that dynamic is something that we've been seeing really across the board in special elections this year. Democrats, uh, according to our friends at Daily Coast, on average are doing about seven points better uh, in uh, in districts where there have been special elections this year than Joe Biden did in those same districts uh, in 2020. And what's really been interesting to me about that and some of our initial other polling for 2023 for key legislative races in Virginia and New Jersey is we recently polled a bunch of battleground voters uh, in in New Jersey for this year's elections. And among people who said that they were certain to vote, the numbers for Democrats were six points better than the sort of overall numbers in the polls were. Uh, And that's even for a November election. So what I've been wondering is Democrats have been doing really well in these elections and April and May and that sort of thing is could that sort of advantage possibly hold true even for the fall? And I think the answer might be yes. And there's a couple reasons for that. Uh, one thing is that the, uh, the way that the electorate has sort of resorted itself based on education lines really gives mm-hmm. Democrats a structural advantage in these elections that are sort of at weirder times and have lower turnouts because well-educated voters are just more likely to come out for an election in April than less well-educated voters are. And since you're now in a situation where well-educated voters are pretty universally Democratic, less well-educated voters are pretty universally Republican, that's just giving Democrats a clear advantage in these elections that don't have something like a 
presidential race on the ballot. Uh, uh-huh. and the other thing in Virginia and New Jersey is that this year you don't have a governor's race. So Democrats, I would say, in 21 did okay, not, not great in Virginia and New Jersey, probably didn't feel great about the results. But you had more of a motivation for these less well-educated voters to come out when there was a governor's race on the ballot. This year, where there's really nothing on the ballot except for legislative races, I think that possibly gives Democrats a pretty serious advantage in terms of who's going to vote and who's going to stay home. Uh, That could lead to Democrats having some pretty great results in those elections this fall. Now, now – in these elections this year, even though his name is not going to be on any ballot, is there still a strong anti-Trump sentiment driving some of this overvote by by Democratic voters, or is it issues such as uh, you know the Dobbs decision or something like that that's doing it? I think abortion has been a huge factor. We really saw almost as soon as the Supreme Court decision came down last summer that Democrats started to have a much bigger advantage in all these sorts of elections. They uh, pulled off that uh, upset in upstate New York in August uh, where it had been expected that they were going to lose now Lieutenant Governor Antonio Delgado's seat in a special election, and Democrats actually won it. Uh, Democrats were able to defeat that abortion ballot measure in Kansas by a very substantial uh, margin. So I do think that uh, that abortion issue has played a huge role in sort of uh, resetting who's motivated and who's not to vote in these sorts of elections. Mm -hmm. All right. One one final question, and uh, then in the interest of time, I'm going to throw it back to David. But this is a national question. Every poll out there, of Republican primary voters, including your own, seem to indicate one thing. Donald Trump has a huge lead on the field. No matter what's going on in the news, no matter about indictments or or, or any of that, is that lead baked in? Is it unshakable? Uh, I don't think it's unshakable, but one thing that uh, is definitely going to be a big factor here is whether all of these Republicans who are running actually keep on running. Uh, because mm-hmm. we did a poll in Wisconsin last week that, you know, we asked about all the Republicans in the field, and I think Trump was up 41 to 25. And then we mm-hmm. said, okay, well, what if it was just Trump and DeSantis? Trump only went from 41 to 43 when you got rid of all the other Republicans. And DeSantis went from 25 to 39. So you go from Trump being up by 16 when the anti-Trump vote is split all sorts of different ways to Trump then only being up by four if it's an actual head-to-head with DeSantis. So something that there was a lot of sort of uh, teeth gnashing about in Republican circles in 2020 or 2016 was, oh, you know, Trump only won because of divided opposition. Well, it's it's possible that that is headed towards that outcome being repeated where Trump only wins because of divided opposition. So it's going to be interesting to see if, uh, if there's any sort of dynamic here over the next six or seven months where some of these Republicans who are polling at four or five percent in the polls who would be for DeSantis 
if it was just DeSantis and Trump, if some of them start getting out of the race and allowing those people to consolidate around DeSantis. But if that doesn't happen, Trump's going to be in pretty good shape. All right, my friend. And with that, I'm going to send it back to David. It's good to talk to you again, Tom. David? Likewise, Tim. All right. All right, Tom, thank you so much for coming on today or tonight. Um, Let our listeners uh, know where they can possibly read the polls that y'all are able to make public um, before you're on with us again. Yeah, uh, our Twitter is always good for keeping up with us, at PPP Polls. Uh, And then when we do web uh, polls on our own, we have them up on our website at publicpolicypolling.com. All right. Well, Tom, I thank you again for sharing all that great information about really all across the country. Hopefully by the next time we get you on, we will get a North Carolina, I'm not North Carolina, a West Virginia poll because we were discussing uh, the possibility that running as an independent, how it would impact uh, Doug Manchin, I'm sorry, Joe Manchin. So maybe we'll have some data to illuminate our discussion in the future. That sounds great. All right. Thank thanks you, again. Tom. Thank you. Okay. Thanks, y'all. Take care. Yep. Great talking you to you. You too. Yes. Uh, Tom Jensen, public policy polling, uh, just great insight on really everything he shared with us tonight. Uh, I think we we're talking about Chris Christie, buy, sell, hold. Catherine, did you officially buy, sell, or hold Chris Christie um, in your comments? That's a good question. I think I'm. Yeah, I'm selling him. Selling him for the nomination because we're not even we these characters have to get to the nomination before we can even think about him in the the general. So and now it's my turn. Um, Chris Christie, I, I think Tim, you're right that he, he's been off the shelf for quite some time, um, out of office, and that's going to be kind of an instructive lesson for a lot of folks, and maybe why so many of them are running, but. Um, he does have name recognition. I'll give him that. And I will say something interesting was the poll results out of West Virginia. I'm not sure West Virginia. I have West Virginia on the mind tonight. Um, New Hampshire. I don't think he'll do really well in Iowa, whether or not Trump's there or not. He's not going to do that well in South Carolina, whether Trump's there or not. But but New Hampshire's the state in which he seemingly kind of filled in the Chris Sununu void because Yes, there is a Republican not getting in the presidential race, and that would be uh, New Hampshire Governor Chris Sununu. Um, so he kind of feels that. So that's kind of like his glimmer of hope because the Granite State does have its own kind of quirky conservatism. Um, will that be enough to generate you know, any kind of real uh, momentum? I think not. So at the end of the day, I'm going to sell him. Uh, he's more interesting than some of the folks uh, that have announced. I'm looking at you, Asa Hutchinson. Um, but at the end of the day, it's not really enough to, to make a big difference. Guys, we got one more show before we take our, our summer break, and next week's going to be a good one. Um, Dr. Charles Whelan's going to come back on the show. He was with us about a year and a half ago to talk about his uh, – fascinating and funny travel book we came we saw we left but when we were talking with him he told us about his economic career and his 
leadership and founding of Unite America. And so we're going to have Dr. Whelan come on next week and tell us all about Unite America, which tries to bridge the divide between um, conservatives and liberals, Democrats and Republicans. We're going to check in on, like, why he founded it, how it's going, maybe even talk some about the no party, no labels party, and, and if there's any thoughts on that movement. But we're looking forward to Dr. Whelan joining us next week on the Cudsy Vine. So until then, it's been a good show. Not everybody. Good night, guys. We are the heirs of that first revolution with a strong and united.